Arizona legislators have made a habit of clamping down and overruling some city-specific laws, and leaders of those municipalities are getting a little tired of it. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, I'll talk about that with Phoenix Mayor Greg Stanton. In a recent article in Slate, Stanton didn't hold back his frustration. We'll also discuss Phoenix's Sister Cities program and find out what the mayor thought of the recent settlement with former Valley Metro CEO Stephen Banta. Plus, figures like Sheriff Joe Arpaio and Reverend Jared Maupin have generated a lot of attention among media outlets for years. But are they always, quote, newsworthy? I'll talk with Cronkite News executive editor and longtime journalist Kevin Dale about why journalists cover who and what they do. And we'll welcome Phoenix natives Mark and Catherine Reckling of the band Sugabeat. For years, they led the As Is Band. Here and Now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning, I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, figures like Sheriff Joe Arpaio and Reverend Jared Maupin have generated a lot of attention among media outlets for years, but are they always, quote, newsworthy? And what should our expectations as consumers be? I'll talk with Cronkite News Executive Editor and longtime journalist Kevin Dale. Also, finding permanent housing for the homeless in the Valley continues to be a multi-pronged effort. I'll get an update from leaders of Maricopa County and the Valley of the Sun United Way. And the band Sugabeat, which includes members of the As Is Band, is putting out local music with a positive vibe. I'll check in with Phoenix natives and Sugabeat leaders Mark and Catherine Reckling. We start today's program with Phoenix Mayor Greg Stanton. In a recent article at Slate, the mayor talked about some of his concerns with the way state legislatures, including Arizona's, step on some policies that cities have tried to implement, from plastic bag bans to policy modifications based on climate change. And Mayor Stanton, welcome to Here and Now. Let's start off with uh, the recent article at Slate, which I thought was pretty interesting. You said some very interesting things there. How big a problem generally do you think preemption and the recent law giving the attorney general's opinion extra heft, how big a deal is that by the legislature? What kind of move is that? It's a real problem. It's really state government interference in the affairs of the city of Phoenix. And the city of Phoenix, we're doing great. We're creating jobs at a near record pace. Unemployment is at a very, very low point. In fact, we're a full percentage point lower than the state of Arizona. We're building an innovative export-based economy. We're passing great public policies as it relates to supporting our gay and lesbian community, our local Latino uh, community. We just passed municipal ID to send a message that Every single citizen should be able to fully access uh, city services. Every person that is living here, you can participate in uh, the city. And we shouldn't have to worry about losing huge amounts of money for police officers and firefighters because the legislature happens not to like some of the public policies that we are, are passing. That's not how good government works. In fact, I'd argue the state of Arizona could learn from the city of Phoenix when it comes to great economic development and creating jobs. Don't try to stop us from doing what we're doing very successfully. Partner with us. But instead, they've gone in a very different direction. So where's the disconnect there? And do you think over your time as mayor, the relations between the legislature and the cities has gotten worse? Is it about the same, but we're just hearing more about it now? Oh, it's definitely gotten worse. And let me tell you what the problem is. Look, the legislature, because of the nature of the district system and the partisan nature of it, you know, it's a very conservative legislature. And they don't want other government entities, including the city of Phoenix or Tempe or Tucson or Flagstaff or Sedona, passing public policies that they happen to disagree with. Well, I got an idea. If you don't like what the city of Phoenix is doing, instead of trying to pass laws to interfere in what we're doing, why don't you run for local office? 
make your case. Let's have a good debate during a political campaign and let the voters decide what the right direction is for the future of the city. But it's simply not appropriate that very conservative legislators representing, you know, the, the, the rural parts of the state would determine what ordinances we should pass in the city of Phoenix. We're doing we're going about our business in a very intelligent way. Everything we do is to advance the economy and job creation here in the city of Phoenix. We're doing a lot to advance our relationship with Mexico to, to increase, create an export-based economy. We're investing in education and creating a more innovative-based economy. And we're sending a message that every single person is valued. Now, some people may not like every single public policy that we pass. That's great. Let's come have a debate. But you don't threaten to take away hundreds of millions of dollars that go for public safety, police officers, and firefighters simply because you don't agree with every policy that we pass. That's yep. bad government. That's divisive government. And that's not going to advance our statewide economy. And, Mayor, have you and folks who work with you talked to the legislature, talked to legislative leaders about this, and been very upfront about this? Or has this been sort of a, a partisan situation where they pass bills, the governor may or may not sign them, and then it's sort of a back and forth after the fact. Is there a way to work with folks to actually get your point across? Have there been organizations? Yeah, no, you know? I, I think there is a huge disconnect uh, right now that, that many in the legislature believe that whatever policies they think should govern should govern not just at the state legislature, but should actually govern all political subdivisions, including the city of Phoenix. Now, you know that the values of the city of Phoenix may not be exactly the same as other parts of the state. Same with Tucson, same with Tempe, same with Flagstaff. But you know what? Those cities are doing great. By the way, other cities are doing great uh, as well. But you shouldn't pass public policies that interfere or stop us from enacting what the voters want us to enact. That's not what democracy is all about. Not every level of government has to have the exact same public policies. And so I think that, that, that many in the legislature, unfortunately, think that their job is somehow to control uh, the cities. Well, I don't think that's really going to advance our uh, economy. Many companies, particularly tech companies with higher wages, really want to come to a more urban environment where we've made smart investments in public transportation and light rail, where they have a great warehouse district, for example. A lot of tech companies like to be in that kind of gritty urban environment. Many companies want to come to a city that has passed human rights ordinances supporting the LGBT community. For example, Phoenix now, four years in a row, has got a perfect score from the human rights campaign. You saw what happened in North Carolina, where Charlotte passed progressive policies to support their LGBT community, and then the state legislature went in the other direction. Business after business is taking their business away. In fact, the NCA won't even have any championships there. The NBA pulled their championship from North Carolina. We shouldn't do that in Arizona. Let the city of Phoenix be the city of Phoenix. Let us pass smart public policies that advance our economy, and the legislature should swim in their lane and pass the policies that they think are right for the state of Arizona. But don't preempt us. Don't interfere with our ability to move forward in a direction that is smart for the citizens of Phoenix. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, joined by the mayor of Phoenix, Greg Stanton. Mary, let's talk a little bit about light rail. I want to talk about possible extension, but first, an agreement has been reached with former Valley Metro CEO Steve Banta and how he used public money. First of all, what do you think of that, and were you surprised that that Banta acted as he did, considering he came to the city with really high marks and a good reputation? Yeah, and it's really unfortunate that uh, Steve Banta broke the public trust by, uh, number one, a 
significant excess in the use of the credit card. And then it turns out, we later learned that there may have actually been fraudulent activities. And I have to be very careful what I say because there is an ongoing investigation by the Attorney General's uh, office that may involve criminal sanction. So I have to be very careful about what I say, other than to say that it's a very sad chapter. Anyone that violates the public trust in the way that Steve Banta violated the public trust should be uh, terminated. I know there's this other ongoing investigation. The contract that he had when he first came to Arizona uh, and, and subsequently resigned, unfortunately, was a very one-sided contract as it relates to termination, separation from the organization. And so I wasn't in the room when they settled the lawsuit, but I trust the board members that they're, they are looking out for the community interest and making the right decision under these difficult circumstances. And though it's unrelated to the actual function of light rail and whether people like it or they don't, has that in any way given critics um, more ammunition, whether it's valid or not, to say, well, look, this thing was not being run very well. It's a waste of money. Look at this guy who was running it. Has that hurt the reputation in any way, whether concrete or not? Not one bit. In fact, uh, you know, the citizens of Phoenix just last year overwhelmingly supported Proposition 104 to make the largest transportation infrastructure investment in the country. And literally, right before you and I talked, I just came from a ceremony announcing a brand new light rail station that's going to go in front of the Disability Empowerment Center in East Phoenix. We will soon be breaking ground on the light rail extension going into South Phoenix. So the people of South Phoenix get the great benefit of light rail in terms of connection to education and jobs. In the not-too-distant future, we're going to bring light rail to Metro Center to help revitalize Northwest uh, Phoenix. In addition, in just a couple weeks, we're going to be extending bus hours to midnight. And buses are not going to be longer than 15 minutes, uh, most routes, 30 minutes, even on the weekends. I mean, we're going to, we're, we are massively advancing transportation in our city. And any great city has to be a great transportation uh, city. So the, uh, the circumstances involving Steve Vanta and his breach of the public trust is a very sad incident. But it is not in any way tamp down people's support for our need to invest in transportation infrastructure and the importance to the future of our economy. And how important is light rail expansion generally? Because there's even, there's going to be some effort to look into whether it should go into the area not far from Paradise Valley Mall, which is getting quite close to Scottsdale. And Scottsdale, at least as far as Scottsdale's leaders, have not been as enthusiastic. What does it say to you to say that it is going to be in all areas of the city, potentially even as, as close to Scottsdale? Do you think in any way that could influence folks there who are closer to it may see it in action? Well, look, uh, Scottsdale's going to have to make some very important decisions about their transportation planning, the future of their uh, city. All I would say is that in the meantime, as Phoenix, Phoenix voters have overwhelmingly supported transportation, we've already seen $8 billion of investment along the light rail line. And if you want to attract millennials, for example, to your community, um, you've got to invest in a more bikeable city, a more walkable city, and a more transit-friendly city. By the way, you also have to be a fun city, invest in arts and culture, because you want to be a place that people believe that they can come and have a great uh, time. And Scottsdale's a great city. Uh, there are partner and economic uh, development. Over the long term, I do believe that they will see the benefits of investment in uh, transportation because, you know, the employees of many of the great restaurants and bars and resorts uh, in Scottsdale, particularly North Scottsdale, how much easier it would be for them to be able to get to get to their jobs, to provide great service to the residents and to the visitors who come uh, to our region and stay in Scottsdale, how much easier it would be able to get to their employment if they had 
a greater investment in public transportation. Again, I respect Mayor Lane. I respect the city of Scottsdale. They're going to make their decisions. In the meantime, Phoenix is going to go full bore. We're moving forward quickly to advance transportation infrastructure. Phoenix Mayor Greg Stanton. Mayor, always good to catch up with you. Thanks. Look forward to talking to you again, Steve. Thanks so much. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The push to end homelessness has been a high priority for leaders in the Valley, including elected officials like Mayor Stanton, who is outspoken in wanting the city to be a leader in finding houses for homeless veterans. Last summer, two emergency shelters next to the Human Services campus were shut down amid concerns they were dangerous and inhumane. Subsequent to that, about 500 men and women who once slept on thin mats have homes of their own. To talk about some of the progress and how it's come about, I'm joined by Bruce Liggett, director of the Maricopa County Human Services Department, and Amy Schwabenlender, who leads the Valley of the Sun United Way's efforts to end homelessness as vice president of Community Impact. Welcome to you both. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So, Amy, let's talk about housing first. Um, how is it defined, and how is it different from what's been done before? Mm-hmm. Sure. Housing first is really a service philosophy that says if we're working with people who have been experiencing homelessness, we want to address their housing stabilization first. And after people have a safe, affordable place to go to sleep every night, then they can address other issues in their life that would help them stabilize economically, further their education, whatever those other things are that people want to do on their own. So it's really a service philosophy of harm reduction, and it's reliant on case managers who do those support services to help people move through those different paths to stability. It's different from the past where... Um, The traditional way people enter their homelessness through emergency shelter, moving to transitional shelter, supposedly graduate a program with all their independent living skills, they're good to go. Well, you know, in 2010, we were at a point 8,000 people were experiencing homelessness in Maricopa County every single night. So something about that system didn't work for everyone. Well, I wonder, was a housing first sort of model something that maybe someone had thought of but thought it's either not practical, it doesn't make any sense, or is this really a progressive idea? Um, Well, it started in New York City, actually. There's a Pathways to Housing program that led a national effort. It's now an evidence-based best practice through SAMHSA. It can get really technical. Mm -hmm. Again, in simplest terms, it's a service philosophy of harm reduction and addressing people's housing situation and then helping them move through all those other aspects of their life. I think people think about the humanity of this and making sure that people are in shelter and they're finding places to live, but also there is that fiscally responsible model, which comes up even more. Is this fiscally responsible? Exactly, yes. It costs, Morrison Institute did a study several years ago, so think that inflation has happened since 2011. At that time, it was about $40,000 a year to keep someone homeless. That's at the low end. So there's other local studies that show it can cost half a million dollars when people cycle through emergency rooms, jail for minor offenses, plus all the shelter-related costs. To house someone can be ten dollars to $12,000. Mm. Some of that's one time. If we talk about rapid rehousing, that's a one-time intervention, and we've ended someone's homelessness instead of costing the public system's recurring annual costs. Bruce, tell us about the impact of the closing of the men's overflow shelter and how that led to even more partnerships and why it was important to try these new steps. Well, it was um, many summers ago, seven, eight years ago. There was uh, excessive heat that summer and people were dying on the streets and uh, many homeless people died. And as a result, 
the local shelter, CAS, began to use a building that the county owned for temporary shelter. It was temporary. A um, few years later, at the request of the Phoenix police, they began to use an adjacent parking lot and allow people to stay there at night. Um, there were really no rules uh, in the parking lot and really no services being delivered. We learned later that the building was unsafe. Nobody thought the conditions in the parking lot were acceptable. And so we began to, came to come together as funders, really under United Way's leadership. And so public-private partnership, we hear that term a lot. How vital is it in this case? It's critical because no one entity has all the resources to address shelter or housing. We want to look at the whole picture, that whole system. And so we certainly need each other. And uh, with city, county, state, and United Way representation, we're really looking at the bulk of resources that go into our local shelters. And we can really drive and influence change with provider input, which is also very critical. Bruce, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, there are elected officials who have been really passionate about this topic, certainly of late. As someone who knows government as well as you do, does it feel like cities, counties, state level uh, are buying into this? Well, I think they're absolutely bought into housing first as a, as a model. But, uh, you know, there's so many dimensions to homelessness. So buying into what? Mm. Certainly there's broad support for helping veterans who are homeless and increasing support for addressing people who are chronically homeless, those who tend to be the highest users of public services, vulnerable people, people with disabilities, absolutely. But some of the episodic homelessness, you know, nobody is making the policy statement that every person will have a place every night. There's not the resources to support that. So we're targeting what we do. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix with Bruce Liggett, director of the Maricopa County Human Services Department, and A.B. Schwabenlander, who leads the Valley of the Sun United Way's efforts to end homelessness as vice president of Community Impact. This is, I guess, sort of a big philosophical question, but is it possible to actually end homelessness um, do we start with chronic homelessness? Are there always going to be some people who, for whatever reason, are homeless? Yes. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, ending homelessness mm -hmm. is a vision. There's a, we've done a lot of focused effort over the last six years for the chronically homeless population and permanent supportive housing. And over 1,200 units have been created in six years for that population. Clearly not enough because we still have some 1,000 people at the Human Services Campus every night. And that's just single adults. That doesn't include families, youth on their own. At the same time, there's a national conversation and around this idea of getting to functional zero, meaning, yes, we probably will not be able to prevent everyone's housing crisis all the time. So how do we have a safety net, enough emergency shelter that allows people to access that for safety overnight? And then the right sizing of housing interventions to address each person's individual situation. And that's the other thing. And working together, we've all looked at data differently. We've all supported a common assessment tool that now generates a starting point of a score to help have that conversation about can we help people with a one-time sort of diversion, general assistance to move people off the human services campus. Maybe they don't even need to be in shelter at all. They have resources, they need one simple thing. Then rapid rehousing is a shorter term intervention. And again, permanent supportive housing is the chronic. So that's where all of us working together have started to have that conversation about what's the ongoing need mm -hmm. to have the right housing interventions for everyone when they 
you know, begin their experience with homelessness or as we find them through that assessment tool. And Bruce, jump in on that, would you? Well, uh, I mean, I think this is the most exciting part of the, the work we're doing is government entities working with the private sector on this. Um, you know, for decades, faith-based groups and nonprofits were helping the homeless. Government began to get involved, put money in. And as we stepped back, we were growing these silos. Now we're taking a serious systemic look at all the pieces from the initial point of contact to assessment to understanding the needs, kind of assessing what the inventory of solutions is, what's the gap. We're making great progress, and it's exciting to be a part of. And now what about specialty programs? And I, I, when I think about vets, uh, think about how many homeless kids there are in some cases. Maybe they don't have the parental support there as well. Mm-hmm. Are specialty programs sensible? Uh, is it important to, to focus? Uh, is that Can that be more effective? Is that more effective if we're thinking about, uh, or, or is there a larger umbrella uh, when it comes down to this? I mean, I guess, I guess multiple philosophies mm-hmm. can work, but what, what mm-hmm. do you guys think about that? Well, I think the specialty programs have an absolute spot. There's certainly veterans group rallies, certain levels of support. Uh, youth have certain challenges, need more intensive intervention and more support. Uh, single adults may just need housing quick, and then let's bring the resources to treat their issues. So um, I think those are the right ways to do things. And are things flexible enough to make sure that happens, Amy, at this point? I, locally, I think we're, we're flexible enough. I think part of what drives that, too, is what level of mainstream resources exist. And HUD and the VA came together several years ago to create a VASH voucher, which is only for veterans. So it allowed a process, a planning process to occur here that said, okay, who are all the veterans? Who really needs this voucher that's going to be really like permanent supportive housing? How many veterans? How do we assess those folks for that voucher. So I think it's also helped inform that gap conversation for us to say, okay, sometimes a resource is tied to a subpopulation that we don't control locally, um, but how do we use all that information together for the big picture? And being in the government role, we get approached by each group. (laughs) Are we doing enough for that group? And when I mentioned the other agencies, I should be specific about the Department of Housing, the State Department of Economic Security, the City of Phoenix, working with Maricopa County United Way to really make it happen. Guys, we've got about a minute or two, and I hate to be cynical, but I feel like it's important to ask a skeptical question because we know the public, and I count myself as a member of the public, of course, can be impatient about certain things. And they'll hear about great progress being made, hopefully a 75% reduction by 2020, for example. But is this something that people have to stay on top of so that the public knows that this problem is not going to go away, that maybe you need public assistance, maybe you need public help, whether it's philosophically or community and whatnot, in order to keep people engaged? Well, it's hard to feel positive if you're seeing it increase in your neighborhood. Right. And that's people's experiences day to day. Um, but those who are involved at the policy level who are tracking this are certainly seeing the progress. But there's been an increase in the number of people who are unsheltered and homeless, and people are seeing that, and they want more done. Amy? Yes, and I, again, we've been meeting every week, every Monday, the four of us as funders. Well, you guys are so entrenched. Because yeah. we yeah. know we, it's not a thing you can talk about once a month and say, have we made progress? It's really highlighting the efforts and having that diligence and discipline to stay on top of it. And you know, the public can get involved by volunteering. There's multiple opportunities to volunteer on the Human Services Campus at shelters, what we're saying, too, is there's more need than the resources we have today. Financial resources will help us to accelerate progress also. 
Well, I'm glad we had a chance to talk about this today. Amy Schwabenlander leads the Valley of the Sun United Way's efforts to end homelessness in the Valley as Vice President of Community Impact. And Bruce Liggett is Director of the Maricopa County Human Services Department. Thanks to you both for coming in. Thank, Thank you. you. And still to come on here and now, we'll find out why the Arizona Republic endorsed Hillary Clinton. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by CenturyLink. With data, voice, cloud services, and more, CenturyLink offers communication solutions for businesses. Services not available everywhere. Information at CenturyLink.com helpful. And good morning. You're listening to Here and Now on KJZZ 91.5 FM. If you're listening online or the free mobile app, thanks for joining us. And donating as a sustaining member is easy and efficient. Are you in? Sustaining members help save money on paper and postage, so more of your gift goes to the programs. You can join as a sustaining member. Just click I'm in at kjzz.org. Mostly sunny today, we've got a 10% chance of rain and a high of 93 degrees this evening, a low of 73. Tomorrow, 20% chance of rain, mostly sunny and a high of 91. Around the state, scattered clouds in Tucson and 85 degrees. It's 54 in Flagstaff, 64 in Prescott. In Phoenix, mostly cloudy skies and 88 degrees at 1131. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The presidential campaign season is made for some strange bedfellows, with former presidents deciding not to support their party's nominee. Arizona Senator John McCain was criticized by Donald Trump and then criticized for not criticizing Trump and saying he would still support him. Well, now the Arizona Republic has endorsed Hillary Clinton, the first endorsement by the paper of a Democratic presidential candidate in more than a century. And with us to talk for a few minutes about that is Joanna Allhands, who is AZ Central's digital opinions editor. She's also a member of the Republic's editorial board. Joanna, good morning. Hey, how are you? I'm good. So for my sensitive uh, listening ears here, has hell frozen over or not? <laughs> it, kinda, it might seem that way to some people, but I think, you know, probably people who have been reading the Arizona Republic's editorials for probably a, almost a, a good year now, this shouldn't be a surprise. Um, you know, we have had this conversation with readers for many months talking about just the things that really trouble us about Donald Trump. Um, you know, I mean, it started many months ago with, you know, him throwing people out of rallies and mocking reporters and, you know, has only become more troubling since. And, you know, we, we laid this out in our primary endorsement um, when we actually went with John Kasich. Um, and, you know, it, it, it was one of those things where, we just we just couldn't support him, you know? I mean, and I, I think anybody that's read our stuff would know that. Joanna, take us behind the scenes a little bit, if you would. How many members of the editorial board are there? Did you guys hash this out together? Did someone ultimately make the final call? Well, you know, it, it's really been a conversation. Um, and it's something where there's, there's nine members on our board. And, you know, we've been talking about this stuff for months and months and months and months. And so... You know, it, it wasn't something where we kind of sat down and had sort of a, a vote per se. Um, you know, we've we've been talking about this with readers for a long time, um, and so we sort of really just looked at um, you know everything that had been going on um, and made the decision that way. So, is this more pro Hillary Clinton or more anti Donald Trump? I'd say it's both. 
um, you know, it, it's definitely a reaction against Donald Trump. But, um, you know, we're not just saying like, oh, well, Hillary Clinton is the lesser of two evils here. I mean, we say that she has the experiment, experience and the temperament to lead. Um, so, you know, I mean, we see good things in her. Let me be real hypothetical on this. Um, based on what you said about the primary and the board endorsing John Kasich at that time, if this were a more conventional Republican candidate and one who maybe had the experience, had displayed that he had he or she had depth of knowledge, could this have gone another way? Possibly. Oh, yeah. I think definitely. Let's talk a little bit more about um, some of the things that were pointed out in the editorial. And, and I was I was actually struck by a paragraph, which I don't have in front of me, but it was about sort of the character of, of Donald Trump and some of the things that he says about people and whether that is, not not saying this verbatim, but whether that is presidential or not. Um, how mm-hmm. much does that really come down to it, the fact that this person needs to be a, a good representative in the sense of this country? Uh, it's not, it's necessar- not necessarily as much about points of view on issues, but just being a good representative from that office. Right. I mean, you know, it, it kind of comes down to, and we sort of have this kind of as a subhead in the editorial, is who do you want with their finger on the nuclear button? You know, do you want somebody who can kind of fly off on the handle and say things that just are not becoming of this country? Um, it's concerning. It's KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. We're talking about the Arizona Republic's endorsement of Hillary Clinton, the first endorsement of a Democratic presidential nominee by the paper in more than a century. And my guest is Joanna Allhands, who is AZ Central's digital opinions editor. She's also a member of the editorial board. And Joanna, this was done beforehand, but um, was there anything that happened in the debate earlier this week that, that would have influenced any lines that came about in the final editorial, influence any members of the board to even be stronger in their feelings about this? No, I, I think that, um, you know, I, and you can read the editorial that we wrote live um, with the debate. I mean, really, Donald Trump, you know, he came out strong and he did a good maybe first half an hour. But he kind of faded after that, you know, I mean, it was like the infomercial was over and, um, you know, Hillary really took over um, and showed, you know, her true colors, I think. Um, And I think that was reflected in our editorial about the debate. As more and more people use the paper digitally, as they go to AZ Central, and perhaps there are fewer conventional letters to the editor, I want to know, as, as a digital opinions editor, have you been getting a lot of reaction, whether it's last night when it, the announcement was first made, this morning when people read it in the hard copy. What have readers been saying about this? Okay, so we've kind of basically broken the internet <laughs> on this one. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's actually been incredible. Um, about half a million people have read our endorsement already. Um, we've had like more than 120,000 video views just on AZ Central and uh about that amount on Facebook Live when we did this. I mean, Dan Rather has retweeted, um, or actually he's shared it on Facebook. Um, I mean, there's just been crazy amount of response on this. And the comments from people, we are trying to keep pace with all of them, but there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands of comments from people. And it's probably what you would expect. Um, You know, obviously there is some negative stuff, um, some people who are very, very upset with what we've done, but there are some positives as well. There are people who say, you know, we understand that there's a difference between news and opinion and that you guys have taken a stand. Um, And 
you know, we really tried with unveiling this online to be transparent and to be open about it and to talk about why we're doing this, why this is significant, because it was the first time in our paper's history to endorse a Democrat over a Republican. Um, And hopefully, at least, people will take that into account as they're reading things. And as you said, there have been thousands, so you haven't had a chance to read all of them, maybe just a a few of them. But was there a feeling that uh, most of the people who responded were passionate one way or the other? Or was there a pretty good, did you have some people who, who, as you said, were a little bit more thoughtful about it? They weren't necessarily, yeah, Hillary is the person I want, or Trump is the person I want. Why did you guys do that? No, um, it's both. <laughs> There's both. Um, you know, the people who it's, it doesn't matter what we say, you know, Hillary Clinton is corrupt and, you know, she's going to go to prison and yada, yada, yada. And then there's the people who fire back. Well, Donald Trump is just as worse and he's going to get impeached and blah, blah, blah. I mean, there's that kind of rhetoric that you probably would expect in a polarized election like this one. Um, but there has been. I, I actually would say that I am somewhat ple- pleasantly surprised by some of the people who have jumped in and said, no, 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 wait, wait, you know, let's let's step back here and let's talk about this rationally. You know, ultimately, we we make an endorsement because we want to in- influence the conversation. We want people to think, you know, and if that's what we do, if our endorsement can make people think critically about the issue and can help inform their vote, we've done our job. Joanna Allhands is AZ Central's digital opinions editor. She's also a member of the editorial board for the Arizona Republic. We've been talking about the paper's first endorsement of a Democratic presidential nominee in more than a century. Joanna, thanks for the conversation. Oh, thanks so much. Appreciate it. This is KJZZ's Here and Now in Phoenix. I'm Steve Goldstein. Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio has received a lot of media coverage through his entire time in office. On some occasions, it's because of the importance of what the sheriff is involved with, but others may involve a so-called slow news day. And in the past, the sheriff's office was even accused of not including some press outlets for some events when they chose not to cover everything. Earlier this week, the Reverend Jared Maupin led a protest in Tempe, and some observers commented that the media, at least for a while, outnumbered the protesters. So what do media outlets deem, quote, newsworthy, and why do they cover what they do? With me to talk about that is Kevin Dale, Cronkite News Executive Editor and former news director of the Denver Post. Kevin, thanks for joining us. You bet. Thanks for having me. So the first thing, though, even after that long introduction, what do you think about the Republic's endorsement, and how influential do you think newspaper endorsements are these days? You know, we had a discussion about that this morning um, in our morning news meeting um, with students and and directors. Um, Well, a couple of things. First of all, I, you know, I've been through in Denver, I've been through um, hearing the hand wringing and the teeth gnashing when when uh, an editorial board is split. So I can imagine the discussions that went on there. you know, I think it's a pretty monumental thing when they, you know, they break with tradition like that. Um, the one thing I'll say about it, about it is a lot of times when a when a paper endorses somebody who, you know, goes against um, what you might think, they often spend the whole time detailing that person's, you know, faults and then saying, however, we still think they're the best candidate. And, and I'll say this for the way it was written. I just thought it was an incredibly well-written editorial as far as making their their case in a in a cogent way. So, I give them definitely give them props for that. Kevin, let's talk about the topic I introduced, which is I want to phrase it this way: What are the responsibilities you think of media outlets? That would include 
KJZZ. It would include The Republic, other outlets as well. When it comes to someone like Donald Trump, coming, someone like Joe Arpaio, uh, is that person automatically worth covering because of his title or influence, for example? Well, sure. There are definitely people who are worth covering, you know, just because of their title or influence. Absolutely. Um, you know, um, and I guess I think I would put both of them in that in that category. Um, uh, so, yeah, the the title does matter. Um, you know, other other reasoning behind it, though, to me is, you know, the the question of what might happen. And if you're not there um, and something something does go crazy, then then you're scrambling. And so a lot of times, you know, media outlets will be there just in case. And I think that that was certainly the case with the protest in Tempe the other day. Because we've seen how these things spin out of control elsewhere in the country, and so so you have to be there. Um, now I'll say this: when we've when we heard that the media was at least initially outnumbering the protests, the first thing I said was, "Well, let's let's give this the coverage that it deserves." At the end of the day, you know, just because we're there with five people in case something happens, doesn't mean you have to blow it out. At the end of the day, sometimes you just say, "Well, okay, it was a small event, and and we'll move on." Now, what do we say, I'm somewhat hypothetical, but what do we say to listeners, readers, viewers, et cetera, if someone were to say, well, um, the people who, again, I'm I'm using these three examples. I'm sure there are many more. Maybe people don't like these examples, but Trump, Arpaio, and Maupin of late. These are folks that Mm -hmm. that sort of... um, uh, they they like media. They will contact media long, well in advance. And in one case, the person's an elected official. The other two are not because they really like the attention. In any way, um, does that take away from uh, – because people are, people get very cynical about this. And they will say, well, you're just covering this guy because he's going to be out there. He, as you said, he might do something, but there needs to be something more than that. I, I don't really know how to ask it in a in a – perfect way but i'm wondering what do you think when a listener viewer reader says to you well you're just you're basically just covering this guy because you know you might get a good quote from him but he's he's not worth covering because of this or that well uh, you know everybody might have a different definition of what's worth covering and what isn't and and you know part of our job is to use our judgment and our training um, and our resources in a way that we think makes the most sense for our readers or viewers. And, and, and ultimately they make the decision as to whether they read us or watch us. So, uh, you know, it's, it's hard for me to say, well, we're going to go just because it's Joe Arpaio. Now, if it's, if it's, Every day we have to balance our, our resources, and, and this is true at the Arizona Republic, and it's true at every TV station and radio station and news organization. You you have to balance your, your resources, and so if it's an incredibly busy day and it's a low-level thing, we may not go do it. If nothing else is going on and something's happening, we may go do it. So we just have to use our judgment and and if if somebody deems it unnewsworthy i i guess sooner or later they'll they'll decide boy they're covering things i'm not interested in but we hope with our training and our years of experience that we are connected to the community in a way that that we we understand things that that people might be interested in well and how vital is providing context to any of that well to me context is everything i mean i i i just feel like you know, you can blurt out a few sentences and and say this thing happened, but yeah, without the context, 
it's you know you're just leaving the viewer and the reader befuddled and and so i i think if the media out uh, numbers the protesters, then you have to say that, or you have to pull up, pull off, and say we're not we're not going to do something. Um, and you know, for Cronkite News, it might be a little different because we have student journalists, and 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 it is about the the teaching of the experience. So, um, you know, we may look at things a little bit differently than than a, than a professional news organization will, but not much. I mean, we're we're pushing uh, the same way and, and pushing for context in every story that we do. So I think it's critical to any story. Well, I'm glad you brought up the fact that you work with students on a regular basis, because I'm wondering, what have you noticed about how they get their news and what they view? I mean, does that affect their view about what's worth reporting? on? Even if they're assigned something, you know, people will still make comments or ask questions about, well, you know, why are we covering this or whatnot? Have you noticed that there is something different because of the way they get their news? A little bit. You know, I we, we prod them every semester to give us ideas from their perspective. Um, you know, we we are training them to be journalists, so they're getting a lot of traditional journalism training from from um, faculty who are steeped in, in experience. So, so, you know, what I teach them is not necessarily how they might look at it from their from their point of view. So we are always asking them, like, how would you how would you cover this? What about this story is interesting to you and to your peers? Um, and, and they don't, sometimes they don't often think about stories in that way. And, and so, so we're trying to tease that out of them as well. Um, and, and it works. I mean, they, they know what they're interested in and it's just a matter of then applying that to, to the subject they're covering. And has social media had a big impact on that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, that's huge. And, and we use it here, you know, part of, part of what we do is try to try to turn out journalists who are, who are multi-platform and can, uh, are, you know, be just as comfortable as a social media editor, as a reporter. Um, and, and so, yeah, that, that feedback has a, has a big role in what news organizations are doing. Um, you know, it's part of the equation. It's not the whole equation. You still need to use your judgment and, and the mission statement of your organization. Um, but, but social's big and, and certainly they're on it. They're all on their phones. I don't, I don't think any of them read a, a newspaper in their hands. It's, it's all about the phones for the, for the students. Kevin Dale is Cronkite News Executive Editor and former news director of the Denver Post. We've been talking about how media outlets deem what is newsworthy and why they cover what they do. And Kevin, thanks very much for the time. You bet. Thanks for having me. And still to come on here and now, we'll talk with a couple of members of the band Sugarbeat, a couple of Phoenix natives. They were formerly in the As Is Band. Here and Now continues. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Arizona Community Foundation, helping donors achieve their charitable goals with advice and planning, grants management, and flexible options to suit your vision. Learn more at azfoundation.org. And you're listening to Here and Now on 91.5 KJZZ.org. In traffic, there's a crash on the shoulder on the Loop 202. That's Santan westbound at Gilbert Road. That crash is blocking the shoulder. And coming up at noon, how much red meat should you eat? According to one nutritionist, the answer is less than you currently do. Also, pelicans appear in the Northwest and are the latest climate refugee. More about that and other stories on Here and Now coming up at noon. 
Mostly sunny today with a 10% chance of rain in the valley, a high of 93. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low of 73. Tomorrow will be mostly sunny with a 20% chance of rain and a high of 91. Around the state, it's 85 in Tucson, 54 in Flagstaff, 64 in Prescott. In Phoenix, mostly cloudy and 88 degrees at 1149. You are listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The As Is Band was a popular group at Valley Venues and beyond for more than a decade. The band had a reggae sound, steel drums, and a party vibe. But two of the principals in As Is, Phoenix natives Mark and Catherine Reckling, became parents and kept up with their music, but mostly in private. Then as the kids grew up, the Recklings got some of their crew back together and formed Sugar Beat. Mark and Catherine, welcome to Here and Now. And let's go back in time a little bit. Mark, how did As Is get started? We started As Is Band in the late 80s. I'd come up from U of A and was attending ASU and had originally had some guys from the music department, um, and we started a small kind of a jazz trio and we're playing restaurants mostly and uh, one thing led to another the owner of the of our first venue the Jamaican got a little bit bigger place a second location and so he said hey can you guys add a, a drummer and I said sure so we added a drummer and then we added a guitar player and pretty soon we were a five piece and and one thing kind of led to another after that to give you the abridged version and we played for another 15, 18 years. I kind of lost track, but a lot. (laughs) And Catherine, when did you join the crew? I joined on in 98. Mark and I went to the same high school. So I knew of him, even though I didn't know him during high school. I knew of him when I had moved back to Phoenix um, after college. And, you know, as his band was all over the place, and we... And she said, I can't believe that guy with dreadlocks went to my high school. (laughs) I know. The first time I really ever talked to him was on the phone because I worked for a talent agency, and we needed edgy-looking people for this Brazilian marble red campaign. And so he was the first person that popped in my head with his bleach blonde dreads, blue eyes. He was. I wish people could see what he looks like now. Edgy, but anyway. edgy and a little smelly, but <laughs> cute hey, for sure. not smelly. <laughs> now a conservative dad. But anyway. <laughs> After that, our paths kept crossing. It was probably about five years later where they found out that I was leaving my band. It was called Desert Gumbo Band, and um, I was ready to, you know, do something else. And um, a mutual friend kind of threw my name in into uh, the ring and Mark was like, I'm gonna, let's let's check it out. And so we ended up working together and... Yeah, we were transitioning from a band of all male and we weren't really specifically looking for a female, but uh, we went and saw her, one of her last gigs with that band and I was like, I could see this working. How did she fit the picture then? When we went and saw her the first time, she had a strong stage presence, very natural looking, which fit our style, you know, which was mostly world beat and reggae and bohemian chic. <laughs> yes, that's right. She was bohemian chic. Yeah. We thought, you know, it was going to be a surprise to a lot of our loyal patrons and um, that it was kind of a drastic change from what we've been doing. But once we started, it seemed 
like it was always that way instantly. So it was very easy. I remember feeling that the first time we rehearsed, and it was only, there were probably like four of the guys, four of the seven guys in the band. And we were at your house, and we started playing some song, and I just, I could tell right then, I'm like, oh my gosh, I love this music, and I, I want to move to it, I want to sing it, I want to... I want to be a part of this. Did you guys have to adjust, or did was there kind of a natural evolution with how the music came together? Uh, there's probably a little adjustment there. You know, we we, we changed some of the repertoire, and um, and we started doing some of Catherine's songs, and and so it was sort of a natural. We didn't really. I don't think with any music you really have a specific like we're all, we're going to play this. This is going to be our goal to play this. It, it's sort of a, a natural evolution, I think, for once she joined. The songs started to lend themselves to her style and vice versa. One of the first meetings that we had about songwriting, he gave me a couple of arrangements and I played it and was like, oh my gosh, I, I've, I have one in my head already. It's like halfway done. And that was like actually the first song that we wrote together. How is As Is His music, how is it characterized or categorized? And what and is Sugar Beat an evolution from that? How similar is it for folks who haven't heard that? We always fell into sort of the reggae category for the first half of our run. And then you know, it started evolving to more funk, pop, world beat styles, kind of all mixed in. And that same thing, that was not consciously done. It's just a natural evolution of the music. And Sugar Beat, our new group, picks up some of that and I would say probably has a little more Latin influence mm-hmm. to it. Probably a little more pop than as is was. I still play steel drums and so it's going to have that flavor and it's always going to have a lot of world beat influence which is just the kind of music that I like and then we have a lot of all the other musicians that bring in what they like and so it kind of become, becomes sort of a amalgamation of, of styles. I think of this as a positive, but, you know, like ASU was known as the party school, which was a negative thing. I mean, as is was considered kind of a party band in a sense, like a really fun band to go see. Catherine, was that good? Was that cool? Yeah, okay. that's, that was, I, I, I'm telling you, that's, all, I, lo- I love parties. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as musicians, was that okay? Did you guys feel like it being identified like that was all right? Yeah. You know, I, I, I still, that's, we still, we want, we want people to have fun and interact with us and dance and move and it's the same there every every single person that we play with in sugar beat the band members mm-hmm. they're all from our as is days or um you know they're musicians that we've worked with in the past and and you know musicians like to have fun and we always want to break that barrier to to like have people come up to us and play percussion with us and and little kids are always the first people they are always coming up i have tons of percussion i'm like bring it we start bringing the little kids then the moms start coming out there after they've had a sangria. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, it's just fun. And yeah. then it builds we're, from there. We're definitely, you know, an upbeat band. And so we hope that, you know, inspires people to get up off their feet or even if they want to sit there and tap their toes, that's okay too. But um, the idea is to, definitely to, you know, give them a slice of uh, a, a little vacation. Your parents, you've been parents for a while. How does it feel to sort of, I mean, you're you're more mature in some ways. Hopefully not yeah. on stage, but in other ways. Right. So, how does yeah, that affect right. the music? It's been great. Um, there was a few years when our children were small that you know it was impossible to 
keep playing and traveling for music was not going to work, you know, when you have infants. And uh, so we didn't stop playing, but we, we, we couldn't play out, you know. And so we were writing songs together and as much as we could fit it in. I think at some point we were really starting to miss it. So when they got a little bit older and it got a little more manageable, and that was probably four or five years ago, at least let's record the songs we've written. Let's get some of the guys together. And so we started. Well, that kind of led into a few more gigs and a few more gigs and a few more gigs. And then one thing led to another and our heart's always going to be in music. And so I think, you know, we'll never stop now. So let's talk about I Finally Feel It. Where'd that song come from? You know, it's funny in life. Sometimes you do things backwards. And instead of us finishing this EP, all of the components for us to shoot this video started falling into place. And it's got a storyline that has to do with um, rescues animal rescues. Once we got that all put together and, and you know, put it on our Facebook page and, you know, we put it on our website and it's been fun because that has kind of shined a little light on who we are again. And, and, um, and, and, I, so, and I should say we should thank the Arizona Humane Society because they were a huge of, part of it. Yeah, a huge part of being able to pull all that off. Yeah. Beat sort of changed from even though it does have elements of the samba, it's also got a lot of pop, you know, groove to it at the first half. It's almost like it's two halves of songs. It it changes in the middle to uh, songo, which most people think of as like a salsa groove. It came together so naturally, also, and you know, we still have the steel drums. There are some horn parts. It's a you know, it's a big arrangement, and uh, you know, we're happy with it. It came out well. And it was fun because, you know, having all of these monster players in town, there's so many talented people here, and it was it was so nice to be able to, like, call them up. And, and they put their spin on it, too, and just took it to another level. And that's what's fun about music. It, it, everybody has such a huge part in it and can make it sound so, so much better. Catherine and Mark Reckling of Sugar Beat, formerly of As Is. Guys, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Thanks Steve. for having so us. Good seeing you. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Tiara Vian for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversations with Phoenix Mayor Greg Stanton or Joanna Allhands about the Arizona Republic's decision to endorse Hillary Clinton or one of our previous programs, please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon, or you can download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. This is member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix in HD. I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock. KJZZ is supported by Live Nation, presenting Mumford & Sons performing at Auction Pavilion on October 5th with Catfish and the Bottleman. Tickets on sale at Ticketmaster.com.